Today I welcome Jamie Williamson, Head of School at the Winwood School in the US. In this episode, I discuss equity in education, the literacy crisis in the US, and how to remove barriers in learning through a growth mindset. We don't talk about purpose enough. And I wouldn't mind asking you, how did you find your mission or your purpose? Because what gave you the tools to become an adult and go, do you know what? I'm not here just to be stuck in the treadmill of making money to get a mortgage, to go through this kind of conveyor belt. What helped you? What shaped you to become mission driven? You know, I wanted to be a psychologist when I was an undergraduate. So I was an undergraduate psych major and my plan was to go to research. I worked in a couple labs and I loved like asking questions and then trying to kind of find ways to ask the question in a setting that's kind of answerable. Like, how do you really narrow your question down? How do you find some data? How do you create conditions? I love that. I love stats. I love statistics a lot. And so I was like, I'm going to go to research when I'm out of this. I'll go to graduate school. I've been somebody who likes to have a little bit of experience before I go into stuff. So I decided to do uh, and work a little bit after undergraduate, and I ended up working in FDA research. So I worked on a medication trial for crack cocaine addiction. So I spent time as a study coordinator. I spent time like doing a little bit of lit review work, and I was meeting with patients and collecting study measures. And so when I found out was like, I really need to be talking to people in my day-to-day <laughs> job. You know, I would see the PI of the study and she was like in her office from like seven until like seven at night and really just grinding away, reading and writing. And I was like, I want to be out with people. So I ended up like working as a caseworker for a social service agency in Cincinnati, Ohio, and got to work with kids. And I was like, you know, I love the work. It was a real sad, there's a lot of sadness there. It was in delinquency dependency court, you know, with uh, MRDD cases, but sometimes we had some sex offenders on our caseload. It was just a really challenging, challenging space. But I remember being in a, a meeting with a public school in Cincinnati, and I had the student who was incredibly dyslexic and was showing up to school. He was in foster care and had been in like, I don't know, 10 placements in like, you know, five or six years. So he'd been bounced around a lot, just no one sort of taking notice and, and special interest in this kid. And, you know, it was an African-American, you know, male, I think he was 12 at the time. Actually, he was 14, sorry, freshman in high school. So I'm like, you know, I'm at this meeting and this school psychologist and this assistant principal were like what I felt like really cared nothing for this child. Like he was showing up every day to school, staying for about 30 minutes because his homeroom teacher he kind of liked. And then he would skip the rest of the day. And he was truant. So he wasn't showing up, wasn't doing anything, was completely failing. And the system was failing him. And I remember leaving this meeting so angry <laughs> that this was being just kind of, there was such an apathetic indifference to this child and his journey and the struggles. And I, like later, maybe that month, I ended up setting a meeting up with a uh, two graduate programs in the area that was looking at school psychologists or developing school psychologists. Ended up loving Miami University and found my sort of space in education. I wanted to be a psychologist in education, supporting kids, supporting interventions, and trying to be that advocate for children. So that's, for me, really what kind of motivated me. And that came out of, I hated school. Like, I just want to be really transparent. I hated school when I was young. I was in a a small little mountain school, deeply under-resourced, a library that was half empty. I never really felt like I was, you know, kind of seen as a student. I never felt like I was kind of supported. And so my entire like passion and purpose in education has been to make sure that kids don't feel the way I felt in school. And that when I see kids who are disconnecting or see kids who aren't being, you know, kind of seen by their teachers, finding a way to kind of activate those kids, bring them in, get them what they need, meet them where they are. So, yeah, it was kind of a, you know, I've had a, I wouldn't say haphazard, but like it wasn't like I was, you know, 
15 years old saying, I want to be in education. It was, you know, let me sort of find some things and kind of like be open to opportunity and sort of, you know, move and grow as I did. It's a different part of being in any organization. You know, there's lots of HR. There's lots of other stuff that probably takes you away from some of the reasons that you got into, you know, into teaching. You know, it's the administration side of it. How have you found that balance? You know, are you finding actually in a leadership role, you're able now to drive forward more with your mission ideas, your service level ideas in that? And are there bits of leadership that you don't enjoy as much as others? I'm a systems level thinker. And so I remember working in classrooms with a single child and having doing some intervention with the teacher and working through this process. And I love the impact of that. I would collect data and I would help the family see the progress, help the teacher see the progress. So then I started working on the classroom level, like, okay, well, if you do this in your classroom, you might actually meet the needs of these six kids. And then I started working on district level initiatives, trying to kind of find ways to have impact at the grade level or the building level. So I've always had this kind of like systems level focus on my work, recognizing that like, you know, the higher up in a system I get, the more impact I can have around culture, around direction, around curriculum, around, you know, how we treat kids, how we talk to kids, how we talk to families. And so for me, the more responsibility I've had in education, the happier I've been, like the less stressed I've been, like, you know, the more sort of, you know, impact I feel like I can have. So that kind of multiplier effect for me has always been really, really positive. What I sometimes joke in, in leadership that there's a whole lot of other duties as assigned, <laughs> you know? That little uh, thing on a job description that, you know, it's like it's the catch all of all the other stuff you're going to do. But I also like the variation of that. Like I, my no two days are the same for me. Like I have a series of meetings I've got to be at. I work with a board now and I love that partnership with my board of trustees. I love, you know, trying to kind of set direction for an organization. I love thinking through financial problems. I'm not a finance guy or a business guy, but like I kind of found some love in that sort of that thinking about how do we solve this financial problem that's going to help us, you know, really work through our mission and achieve what we want to achieve in a big way. There's really not at this point in my career, I have a pretty good sized team and I, there's not a lot of days where I spend time doing things that I don't really love, you know, so I don't know that I have a ton of the administrative pieces that I don't like. I enjoy coaching leaders. I enjoy developing talent. I enjoy you know, problem solving on hard problems, you know, challenging, you know, whether it's communication or parent issues. Now, there's some days where some of that's, you know, I can feel heavy and hard. For me, leadership's a creative pursuit in so many ways. And I've got a lot of creative energy. So I get to feel like I get to implement that and bring that to work every single day. Yeah, but also you infuse passion, right? And leaders, you need passion because passion becomes contagious because people believe that someone is passionate about it. They drive it and the energy It's something that draws people into a leader because of that passion. We're going to cover things about equity issues. And I know you're passionate about the science of reading. Interesting, you talk about systems. I mean, what is the most important systemic change for US educators to affect right now? Because we've had the lockdown period. I think there were some good things and some bad things to learn. There's some things we need to take on. There's a danger we could go back to what we always did. There's yeah. also a danger that we can adopt technology as a lazy way of thinking that's going to fix education. There's obviously quite a lot of polarization going on. We're trying to change education. And your point here is that it's about changing education for the child, the individual mm-hmm. child. But what do you feel like now in America, what is the most important systemic change for US educators to affect for our kids and the training generations? You know, I have to kind of come back to teacher training on that one, you know, for our work, right? So we're a school that focuses on kids with language-based learning disabilities. So primarily dyslexia, reading issues, comprehension issues, some writing issues, the whole gamut of language. 
But what we see today is I think there has been, you know, some real challenges around teacher training and making sure that teachers have everything that they need to do the work and to actually have the best research at their disposal and understand how to kind of really implement research-based, you know, practice. I think during the pandemic, you know, I had a lot of schools I would talk to would say things like, oh, you know, we've managed this so well. We've got this A-B schedule. Kids are in part-time. They're home part-time. They're all on Zoom. We've been recording these asynchronous videos. It's going to be great. It's been great. And I'm like, has it been great for you or has it been great for the kids? Because I think there's a real distinction there, if I could be really honest. And I have been, I said, the data is going to tell us what this did for kids. You know, the data has shown in the last two years in the, in the United States, we've actually lost like two years of gains in reading and math. Like we're really struggling to get our kids back up. I think teachers have had a hard time seeing where the child challenges of the kids be on a Zoom kind of modality. I think a lot of the asynchronous work that was happening was not, not in the best interest of children. You know, I feel like if YouTube was going to give us all we needed from an educational standpoint, you know, then we would all have doctorates via YouTube, right? Like we would all have all this great understanding, but we don't. Some of that content, you can actively engage that content, that video content, but most folks don't do that naturally. It's a real passive engagement. So you think you're learning, but you walk away with very, very little at the end of the day. So I think this idea of understanding what works in education, we know a lot about what works, but I think sometimes we actually we neglect some of those things because it doesn't feel as fun to us or doesn't feel as good to us to do the thing that's going to work. Well, I like teaching it this way. It's like, well, education is not about me. When we're hiring folks into our community, I really, I say this explicitly. This work is not about you. This work is not about me. This work's about the children we serve. And if we're going to stand up and do what's right for a child, whether it's hard for me, whether it's hard for you, we're going to do the right thing for this kid. And thinking about all the kids that we're serving, and just making sure that we're always thinking about it from that perspective and coming to the research and see where can research inform us? How do we collect data? How do we really look at data and make some data-based decisions along the way, not decisions that like from the gut that just feel right, but data or decisions that show us the data would guide us in the right direction. So, And do you feel that lockdown, COVID, remote learning has had a far greater impact on those children that do have some form of learning difficulties? Is there a widening gap and a lot of catch up to do? And will they ever be caught up? I think the tail of this crisis is going to be wagging for a long, long time. I think there's going to be a really multiple years where we're going to have to spend some time really trying to kind of catch up. I think kids who struggle, who need a direct instruction modality, who need to be taught explicitly how to sound words out, like even in math, you know, the research will tell you if you had two years of poor math instruction, you're almost never getting back on grade level. And so, you know, and during the pandemic, I think we had two years where the vast majority of kids in this country were getting, I would say, subpar educational experience in reading, writing, and math. Not because I think teachers weren't hoping to do the right work, but I think just the system was really working against everybody. We're going to be dealing with this for a long time. And I think the kids who struggle are the kids who are most impacted by this. And, you know, and, and as an independent school, we get a lot of say over what we do and what we don't do. I think our sort of initial shutdown in March of 2020, we did almost exclusively direct instruction via Zoom where kids were getting their instructional pieces. It worked well enough, but the minute we could get our kids back in the building that fall, we worked to do that. And we actually, as a program, committed to making sure that everybody who wanted, we had some families who were deeply terrified. We had some teachers who were deeply terrified of coming back into a school. And so we wanted to make sure that everybody who wanted to, from a safety standpoint, kind of have a remote option had that. But we didn't do an A-B schedule. We had all kids in, and if you were home, you were zooming into the classroom receiving live instruction. And we did that from day one. It was a heavy, heavy lift, both for our families, for our teachers, for our leadership. But we felt that was the right thing. And I don't feel like our kids lost two years. 
So, you know, we have about a thousand kids between our three campuses. And, and I felt like our kids really got what they needed throughout this process. So for us, there was a lot of positives. I think for the vast majority of kids in the country who were struggling with reading, writing, math issues, like this was a hard, hard time for them. I've got four children and one of my children, my daughter, I mean, she's, she's diagnosed dyslexia. She really struggles. She was also caught in a period of lockdown where she was a young teen. And, you know, it's the most important times of a, yeah. a young girl's life is those where she's developing. Yeah, being isolated, having learning difficulties, all of these things compounded to just a horrific, horrific experience that you just as a parent, you're kind of, you're just thinking, what can I do to help and yeah. make my daughter thrive? You know, where's the joy? Everybody deserves that bit of joy. So, you know, I, I completely get it. I see it from a parent and I see it now and what she's got to do in this long tail in terms of, you know, also there's the stigma of it all about what it is that you need to learn and how you want to learn it. I know that you're passionate about the science of reading and equity issues in education. What led you to your interest in equity in education? I think we're all products of our own experiences, right? And I think when we can see that how much our experiences have sort of guided us here, I think it's really important. You know, I grew up, as I said earlier, in Eastern Kentucky, the heart of Appalachian, the coal fields of Kentucky, in a very, very under-resourced little, you know, mountain community. And, you know, I went to school with like the same 13, 14 kids from K to eight, and then we went to a little bigger high school. But, you know, like there was just, there was a whole lot of lack of access to stuff. You know, at my age, you know, like mid forties, you know, a lot of schools, kids in my age had they had computers when they were in elementary, they, they were just starting to kind of be a process. We had like one computer in the entire building until, <laughs> so I didn't get access to some of that stuff until way later in my high school career. You know, the idea of not having the resource, not being from a place where education was valued as much or is kind of sought out as much for me, it's just really important. And education is the only thing that's allowed me to kind of move in life, right? It's really, sometimes I talk about, you know, I've had to work really hard, certainly, but like I've had a lot of people who've been really kind to me, a lot of people who've been really open, but I've also had some great educational experiences post, you know, my elementary high school experience that have allowed me to kind of push out of that space a little bit. So I think education is such a great equalizer in this country, but I don't think we have a lot of equality when it comes to the educational experiences across this country. And so when you've got a deeply under-resourced school, you know, you know, often have overcrowded classrooms, you have lack of, you know, really appropriate materials. Sometimes you don't get the best and brightest teachers who show up in those spaces. You get some passionate folks who want to help, but, but sometimes you, you have a hard time staffing some of those scenarios. It really impacts how I kind of come to the table and think about making sure that we want to create a safe place for all kids to come and grow and learn. I think education and learning is, you know, there's, you know, Carol Dweck talks about the growth mindset of the fixed mindset, right? I am definitely in the growth mindset kind of camp. Like I don't see myself as an expert. I see myself as having expertise and I see myself as constantly trying to grow and learn. And so this idea of helping sort of cultivate that in kids is just incredibly important for me. And I think a lot of schools, you know, I think we sort of beat that creativity out of kids or we're sort of we squash it as they go through the system here, making sure that we hit all our markers on this or that or kind of over-focusing on sort of a, you know, the old uh, factory model of education where we're just going to, so you're sitting and getting and we're going to move you through the system. But I want to see kids like engaging learning and being challenged and being sort of, you know, seen and heard as students. And I think that can help lift some of this work in, in equity for us, make sure kids get good skills and foundational support for their educational journey. I hope you're enjoying the Inspiring Schools podcast. We're always on the hunt for guests with vision and a desire to share them. If you'd like to be involved or know of someone with great ideas at a school near you, please drop me an email to podcast at interactiveschools.com 
and my team will be in touch. You said that issues around literacy are not limited to students with language-based learning difficulties and that we're looking at it at a micro-level problem when it's actually a macro-level problem. Can you expand on this? Absolutely. You know, so in the U.S., we've been doing the National Assessment of Educational Progress for 20-some years, right? So we've been collecting data on reading and math scores and how those scores have sort of changed over time. And what we have found is that the percentage of folks who are actually proficient in reading in this country is pretty low, staggeringly low. And that number has not changed in the last 20 years, really. Like it's gone up or down a percentage point, but we are not delivering on the promise of making a well-educated, you know, kind of mass citizen body here. When I think about reading and the importance of being able to kind of read and understand the material being presented to you, this impacts your ability to think through economic challenges, think through political challenges, think through you know, conversation and dialogue and debate within your friend group and circle. There's so many spaces where, you know, we have missed opportunities to really think about literacy as a whole. And I'm saying as a, someone who runs a school for language kids with language-based learning disabilities, I have the most impacted group of that, like the 10 to 15 percent of all students who are struggling. But I would argue that those kids who are like the 15 or the 10 percentile to like the 45th percentile, those are kids who are sometimes they're kind of surviving the educational experience, but not thriving and not really reaching their full potential. And then I would also argue that if you were doing a better job of teaching reading and language and literacy to kids who are even on the higher end of the spectrum, you're going to have better writers, better thinkers, better you know, critical analysis as they're moving through their system. This is really a problem for the entirety of our country and one that when you see this data that's been stagnant for such a long period of time, like it makes me angry. It fills me with some things that I don't like to feel, right? And I think we should be doing everything we can do to bring good research into the classroom, bring good programmatic support, and really allow teachers to be seen as professionals and to be seen for all the great things that they bring and work to make sure we're providing as much training and professional development for those folks as we possibly can. So they're getting the best information that they can do to do their jobs well. And what happens when students receive effective literacy remediation? I get this question a lot. We are a school where kids come out of other schools and come to our school for a short period of time. In the States, we talk about the least restrictive environment sometimes. This idea that like, you know, you want to serve kids in the space that doesn't sort of limit them the most, right? And for some people, they would say, well, you're, you're this pullout program where you're standalone. I think our kids feel like they're going to a typical school. They feel like they're going to a school that just meets them where they are. But I think whenever you provide a effective remediation for literacy work, I think what you do for a child is one, there's no real link between cognitive ability, like your IQ and your reading ability, right? We have kids whose IQs are off the charts who are struggling with reading and maybe three and four years behind in reading. It has nothing to do with their IQ. It has everything to do with the fact that they need to be taught in a little different manner. And so finding some ways to make sure that you know, we're doing what kids need to be done and, and effectively instructing them on the letter, the sight symbol relationship, that decoding sort of work, but also enhancing that vocabulary component, bringing good background information, connecting it up to their real world experiences. I think when you do that for children, the confidence that comes and our kids show up. And I love this about our program. These are kids who have like literally failed everywhere else they've been you know, not a great educational experience to get into our door. And their kids sometimes will say, I will never read out loud in front of a classroom. Just won't happen. And then like three weeks in, they're raising their hand and they're reading out loud <laughs> because they feel safe first and foremost. And I think psychological safety in education is just key. Like it's really our job to provide this sort of safe place for kids to be able to raise their hand and say, I don't know. Yeah. And for the community around them to say, oh my gosh, like 
Thank you for asking. I was actually wondering about that too. I don't think in the world we value knowing so much versus learning sometimes that it's better when you know stuff versus like, are you learning stuff? I value learning and I want our community to value learning. And learning is asking questions, being vulnerable. And us as the adults in the system and as the other kids in the classroom, like we want to create a safe place for everybody to come in and acknowledge where they're strong and acknowledge where they need some help and be perfectly okay with the idea of asking for help. Because as adults, if you think about the thing that gets in most people's way in their personal career, it's not whether or not they read well. It's whether or not they learn to ask for help and advocate for themselves and actually ask questions and think about themselves as learning and growing. Yeah, it's true. And the other thing as well is that we're fixated on success. And as society and as even as educators, we kind of position success as something that is defining you. And when children are at school, they don't really know what they want to do. And yet they're guided by curriculum design, matriculation, onward, you know, a better life, the American dream. But you have to go through these gates that everyone goes through. And by the way, if you don't quite conform to all these gates and do really well at them, you're not great. That in itself is difficult. And I know a lot of great schools that are that celebrate failure. It's to your point that we have to get away from everyone will always drive for success in the terms that society have always judged, the material worth, size of house, what kind of car do you drive, what kind of job you've got, not yeah. whether or not actually am I happy? Have I got a purpose? Am I kind of Maslow's hierarchy of needs? Like we never really get the fundamentals right. We're looking for self-actualization, but actually we completely miss out. The middle bit here. I also think that we don't, as adults, we don't talk about our setbacks as much. You know, like when you think about like the entrepreneurial journey, like somebody like a Richard Branson, who's who's dyslexic and has been wildly successful in business. But I guarantee you, he had a lot of failures and setbacks on the way to his journey there, right? And so many people have these setbacks, but we don't actually talk about them enough for our kids to say, oh, wow, these adults here, like they take a step forward and sometimes two steps back. And then they regather themselves, they learn a little bit, and then they move forward. That, for me, is a much better, this idea of growth and progress versus, like, I achieved X. I want to talk about my progress and how I'm growing and where I'm heading versus, like, what I have achieved. Yeah, and as adults, you know, you kind of, you draw a line and, you know, you look at us, where we are, and people might look from the outside and go, you know, you look like you're pretty successful, you've got a great life, but they don't know the journey Mm -hmm. you go on. They just see where you're at in that moment in time and go, wow. Yeah. Is that successful? And I think being able to, again, you know, do a program where, you know, adults, particularly, as you say, and also I'm going to call them young adults, the ones who have literally just left education, maybe, or gone into college, but left college, gone into a job, they themselves can go back and go, do you know what? It wasn't easy. I, by the way, I failed at this. You can see me being a really good scholar, yeah. but actually, I hated science, right? Mm-hmm. Until I had this great teacher, they made me feel good. I was really bad at it celebrating those stories and showing vulnerability is what we don't do it very well. How do you teach vulnerability? How do you teach it? Is it just about having a safe environment? You know, I think that there's a lot of modeling that needs to take place. And one, I think we have to acknowledge that that's part of the journey. And like with my own children, I have a 17-year-old who's heading off to college next year, and I've got a 14-year-old who is going into high school next year. I try to do my best to like create a space where, you know, when they have a setback, It's not the end of the world. Like my love is unconditional no matter what's happening in their world. I still love them. I still adore them. I'm still here to support them. But I also try to share like some stories about how when things didn't go well for me, here's what happens. Here's what I did. And I'm trying to cultivate like one, a really strong kind of like connection with my child, my children, right? To make sure they know I love them. And because I think love is kind of the, for me, the baseline, right? Like I don't want my love for my children to ever feel conditional. 
And when my students, I actually don't want my respect of them to feel conditional. I don't want my support of them to ever feel conditional. So I respect kids. I don't wait for them to respect me. I don't wait for them to support me. I show them that love and support the minute they walk in our doors, right? They deserve that as children. And they think they also deserve me to do show up and do everything I can to make sure that they feel safe enough to raise that hand. I share these stories with kids sometimes. It's really working to kind of acknowledge the growth process. The growth process is not a linear one where we take steps forward every step of the way. It's often very non-linear, right? And the things that I learned from the most in my career and life have not been my successes. They've been my setbacks. And acknowledging and celebrating, like in science, right? Like you do an experiment and it doesn't work. You know, you should see that as actually that's still progress forward because now you know what's not going to work. And so now you can kind of come back to the table, reinvent, reiterate. There's some cultural pieces here that we have to acknowledge in the fact that like we have valued the idea of success over progress, I think far too often. And I think that we have to model for our kids and show that there's actually strength in vulnerability. I'm a big Brene Brown fan. I've read like everything she's written. I listen to her podcast frequently because for me, that just the idea of if I wasn't able to kind of, you know, ask for help and allow people to help me along my journey, I wouldn't be sitting here today. I would not be in any way, shape, or form sitting here today. And I have just acknowledged the importance of me like taking some risks and calculated risks, right, in my journey here, acknowledging when things didn't go well, doing a bit of a mea culpa, and then moving forward and kind of picking up those pieces and trying to reevaluate and coming back stronger. And I don't think we give kids enough opportunities to actually have setbacks and talk through the process. We sometimes, you know, there's the lawnmower parents who want to just mow down all of the uh, challenges for kids. And then they get into their like, late 20s or 30s, and they have a big setback and they don't know what to do. I would rather my children sort of understand what that journey and struggle is in my house when I have them or in my classroom so I can help them see we're all going to hit a wall at some point, no matter how bright you are and how, no matter how amazing you are. What matters is how you're going to overcome that whenever you move past or whenever you encounter that issue. You said that there's an equity issue in K through 12 education and at Winwood you've got the vision for every student to be empowered to achieve unlimited success. What skills do you believe students need in their toolkit? You know, I don't think you can underscore the importance of self-advocacy enough. The world works in a really interesting way sometimes is that if you're open to asking for help, people will provide you with help. You know, and I think for me coming out of where I came out of, even like the idea of like, how do you move forward in, in life and business and work? You know, it's really kind of activating, you know, your network, not being afraid to ask for help, not being afraid to show when you know, not being afraid to show when you don't know. For us at Windward, we want kids to understand that they have some strengths. Because I think sometimes our kids come to us and have forgotten that entirely because the educational system's not been built for them. So they come to us with just, uh, you know, some real challenges around like, can I do this? Can I learn? And I think we have to staff our building with people who believe everybody's capable of learning. And I know that may sound like a simple sort of straightforward promise here, but I don't know that the world often sees everybody being capable of learning and growing. I have that as a core belief as my human being nature. I believe everybody's capable. And I want kids to know that their agency, their hard work, their effort are what really is going to determine their ability to be successful in addition to activating all the help they can get along the way. We focus on building really good skills for kids to make sure that we, like in writing, for instance, a lot of places will say when you're teaching writing, write a five-paragraph essay when you're in fifth grade. You need a topic sentence and a conclusion sentence and supporting details in the middle. 
And that's like almost the extent of writing instruction. Whereas at Winward, we actually, we have kids learn how to write a good sentence. How do you construct a really good sentence to convey your idea here? Where do you put that comma? It's really important. Is this the right word choice? There's a couple ways you can say this. Have you been as clear and succinct in the process of that? We give them some real structure learning to do that. We teach them the structure of the English language to make sure they know every sound and vowel combination and uh, you know blend on the planet here to make sure that as they encounter this, but we do that foundational work so that we can do the big work later. And I think that idea of having kids be really good self-advocates, understanding themselves as learners and getting good foundational skills is really the key to building that vision where every kid can achieve unlimited success. Because I think the conversation around potential for me is so fascinating. We think potential is defined, but I would argue potential is completely undefined and undefinable, right? So my potential today is, let's just call it X, right? I have some potential here. But if I learn something today or learn something tomorrow, my potential is actually shifted because I have some new information that I didn't have the day before that I can now build upon. And so when we think about kids as being this kind of thing filled with a finite potential, I would argue we are looking at it completely and utterly wrong, that we have to see people as being capable of growing and learning. And the more we help them grow and learn, the greater that potential is going to be as in this undefined space, right? I love it. What we need right now is a diagram, a formula, <laughs> and we can go into business. But... <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. I think it's all about making sure kids see themselves as being capable of growing and learning. There's a simplicity there, but it's also like a wildly complicated thing to actually implement. That's the core. And to me, yeah, you added happy, curious, and confident. All of those things come up because then they feel they can achieve. And, you know, if they can try and fail, and as you say, they have an environment yeah. to thrive. Wow. I think what you're doing at Winwood School is phenomenal. And uh, I, I thank you for your service to all those oh. kids in the community. And please keep sharing your voice. It's been fantastic. You can connect with me on Twitter, Instagram, and via LinkedIn. Remember, keep inspiring schools. We need more future school thinking now.